You ever watch this guy on television? You all were not telling the truth, and you should not be trusted. Congressman Matt Gates, thank you for what you yeah. did for your country tonight. Be offended with the Democratic whip, not House Republicans. Like a machine, Matt Gates. Welcome to Hot Takes. I'm Congressman Matt Gates. Let's talk about the news. The news in Wisconsin is more damage, more destruction, more violence, potentially more death on the horizon. We certainly hope not. Take a listen. Now to breaking news overnight from Kenosha, Wisconsin. At least two people were killed there last night. Another wounded when shots rang out during protest over the shooting of Jacob Blake by police. We are still learning about the victims and about who allegedly opened fire on the third straight night, straight night of clashes in the city. But violence spilled onto the streets of Kenosha once again overnight. Two people were killed and another was wounded after shooting broke out. It breaks my heart to hear this news, to see just the never-ending cycle of outrageous, destructive conduct in our country. And while I think there's obviously an appropriate time for a peaceful protest, there is no basis for the type of harm to our fellow Americans that we currently see in Wisconsin. Sadly, this is proving a point that I made earlier on the podcast when we saw uh, this type of violent reaction in Portland, in Seattle, on the West Coast. I warned that in the heartland, in regular America, we could also see some of these very devastating consequences. And we don't want to see that. We don't want it for anyone. We want safe streets. We want supported police. We want institutions that work. And it's my hope that we will be able to return to that normal sometime soon. But a great nation cannot allow its cities to burn and be just run over by a permanent criminal element. And uh, I am hopeful that we will see a strong response to this if people are in jeopardy of being harmed as a consequence of the riots. My good friend Tiffany Trump gave a fabulous speech at the Republican National Convention. And I want you to take a special listen to the portions that deal with the cancel culture and big tech and the control over debate in our country that some seek to have. People must recognize that our thoughts, our opinions, and even the choice of who we are voting for may and are being manipulated and visibly coerced by the media and tech giants. If you tune into the media, you get one biased opinion or another. And what you share, if it does not fit into the narrative that they seek to promote, then it is either ignored or deemed a lie, regardless of the truth. This manipulation of what information we receive impedes our freedoms. Rather than allowing Americans the right to form our own beliefs, this misinformation system keeps people mentally enslaved to the ideas they deem correct. This has fostered unnecessary fear and divisiveness amongst us. Why are so many in media and technology and even in our own government so invested in promoting a biased and fabricated view? Ask yourselves, why are we prevented from seeing certain information? Why is one viewpoint promoted while others are hidden? The answer is control because division and controversy breed profit. But what are the consequences when only one side of the story gets out or when only one viewpoint is acceptable? For our education system, it meant sacrificing civil debate 
by creating an atmosphere where students with contrary opinions are too afraid to speak. Many students find themselves suppressing their beliefs to fit into what the acceptable groupthink is. In short, our nation suffers by inhibiting our diversity of thought and inclusion of ideas. Is cancel culture something that only the elite care about? I was listening to Nate Silver on the 538 podcast today, and they talked about the cancel culture concerns as concerns that only political elite folks have on the right and left, and that regular Americans don't really feel the impact of being canceled or censored. I don't think that's true. I think all around this country, people are frustrated as they learn more about how digital platforms curate information in a special way to try to shape reality to fit their particular narrative or their particular worldview. And I think that it may have been the case, you know, two, three years ago, that you only had people that were hyper-involved or engaged in politics focused on the control that big tech has. But I think more and more, the base, certainly of the Republican Party, sees the dangers of big tech. We see the danger of cancel culture. And we love our culture. We don't want to see it canceled. And we also don't want to see big tech define the nature of truth in our country. And so I think Tiffany Trump is right on. And it's quite something that you've almost seen a reversal in how politics deals with this question of a full and robust debate. It used to be the case that you had some of the more puritanical minds on the Republican side saying, oh, we can't, you know, we have to ban offensive speech or dangerous speech or hate speech. And the reality is we have to have a constitutional accommodation even for speech that makes us uncomfortable. And it was, you know, more in the 90s and early 2000s, the political left the ACLU type folks who stood up and said, well, you know, we have to allow for, um, you know, these offensive thoughts to enter the marketplace of ideas so that we are strong enough to defeat them. And now it's just the opposite. It is the woke left. It is the kind of, uh, uh, I think, you know, frailty of the current left-wing position in this country that says, well, if it's if it offends us, if it is not consistent with what we believe should be the reset of America, then no one should hear it, that it has to be crowded out of the public discussion. And I just have a higher view of America and Americans. Our country is strong enough to hear offensive speech. Our country is strong enough to hear hate speech because in a healthy marketplace of ideas, those ideas don't win. We prevail over them with inclusiveness and love and appreciation for one another. That's the America I want to live in, one that achieves its highest virtue and potential as a consequence of including ideas, not excluding them. Uh, we know what we don't believe, not because we haven't heard it, but because we have and because we use facts and evidence to get it right. Getting it right is what America has done over the last couple hundred years, and I think that we're only going to stay great and stay active in our minds and in our lives uh, if we are able to confront bad ideas and bad speech with better ideas and better speech. Good job, Tiffany. Lindsay McPherson with Roll Call just wrote a profile about yours truly, and I think they're trying to figure out what quite to make of me. Uh, I don't want to run for House leadership. I am not intending to run for any other political office other than that which I have. 
Uh, and yet they're trying to understand why I am endorsing candidates in races, why sometimes I have a different view than our leadership when it comes to fundraising and who it's appropriate to take money from. I'm the only Republican in the Congress currently who doesn't take PAC money. Uh, I think that that just makes members of Congress a, a part of the maid service in the Washington money laundering game. And I'm not here for it. So uh, I lay out my vision on a better uh, campaign finance uh, ethic that I hope will embrace at least uh, some of the patriots who are coming to Washington to try to revive our country and really breathe a lot of life and energy into this great Trump movement that, that we've got going. And uh, also the story uh, details some of the disagreements I've had with leadership on uh, policy uh, and on politics. So check it out in Roll Call. I hope you enjoy. Jerry Falwell Jr. and his wife, Becky, are acquaintances of mine. I've had occasion to chat with them at events in Washington, and I have seen them at a time or two around the country. They are currently in just quite a personal hell over the activities that this pool boy has alleged regarding an affair that involved the married couple. Jerry Falwell Jr. and his wife putting out a statement that they had been extorted by this person, that uh, Becky had an affair, that then he became more demanding and more aggressive, that it was a fatal attraction type situation, and uh, they have stepped away from their public role at Liberty University so that they can deal with this. First, my heart goes out to the Falwells and, and really anyone who has to see their personal life and their personal frailty and their personal choices you know, on display before everyone to see. Second, who cares? I mean, so what? Like if, if someone was involved in their marriage with some other person, is it really you know, part of our national nosiness that we have to be a part of it? I would like to live in a country where we don't judge people based on what they do in their bedrooms, where we don't judge people based on maybe the, the worst moment that they had in a relationship or a marriage. I was the only Republican and, and at first the only member of Congress who stood up for Katie Hill when a thruple that she had been involved in was weaponized against her. And whether this was an affair or a thruple or whatever, I just don't think that it defines the contribution that someone can make to their country, their community, to their university, uh, or to any institution that they care about. Look, no matter what thruple or non-thruple the Falwells were involved in, there is no dispute that they have brought Liberty University to some of its highest crescendos of success from student enrollment to the endowment that they've built, to the athletic program that they've built, to the facilities and physical plant that they've built, Liberty University has thrived under Jerry Falwell Jr.'s leadership. And so whether it's true that his wife had an affair or whether it's true as, the, as this pool boy claims that they were sort of all three involved in, in some activities, uh, I just don't think that it ought to besmirch or limit the contributions that this couple can make. Obviously, they've reconciled with one another if there was a conflict between them in the marriage, and they're ready to move on with their lives. And I'm here to say, you know, good on them. Uh, but the, the, I guess, only criticism we see, you know, from the left that I want to acknowledge and deal with is the criticism that, well, at Liberty, you know, the students might not be able to engage in all of the activities that the leadership of the school was able to engage in. I'm not here for the judgment 
whether it's directed at the administrators or the students. Perhaps this is an opportunity for Liberty University to reflect on the underlying humanity of all of us. No matter who we are or who we love or the types of relationships we're in, uh, perhaps this is a chance for the nation to be more accommodating to the Falwells and for Liberty to be more accommodating to their students. Wouldn't that be a win-win for everyone? Don't judge anyone based on their thruple. Don't judge any student based on you know, a relationship that they might have that might not be entirely consistent with someone's previous dogmas or impressions of appropriateness. A more loving, a more perfect union for Liberty University, for the Falwells, for all of us. It turns out Bette Midler is a pretty terrible person. Who knew? She always looks so happy on television, but... Uh, she criticized the First Lady Melania Trump in a tweet saying, Oh God, she still can't speak English. Now, when Republicans say anything even remotely negative about someone who has immigrated to our country, even if it's not about their immigration status, if it's just about some other thing, we're all like deemed to be racists and xenophobes and the worst people on the planet. But here, Bette Midler can essentially poke fun at the First Lady who, by the way, speaks way more languages than Bette Midler does, who's a brilliant, wonderful woman. I know the First Lady. I think the world of her. And Bette Midler feels it appropriate, timely, during the First Lady's remarks to the country to criticize her English. Well, you know what? Now, Margaret Thatcher once said that if, they've got the, if they're making personal attacks against you, that means that they've run out of every substantive argument they could possibly have. And I'm, of course, uh, paraphrasing the former British Prime Minister there, but it, it seems as though the First Lady's optimism, her support of her husband, really humanizing the President in her remarks, that got under the skin of the left and they had no substantive argument to, be, to make, and so they literally made fun of the First Lady's accent. I think it's awful, and I think Bette Midler is pretty awful for having done it. The Washington Times has a story out about the president's goals for a potential second term, and I was particularly grateful that term limits are still included in the president's aspirations for our country and for really the draining the swamp reforms that we still need to see in Washington, D.C. Term limits would be so helpful to the Congress. They would ensure that people are focused and engaged rather than just marking time. Uh, and it also would create more opportunities for leadership for newer, talented members. In a seniority-based system, the opportunities for leadership go to the people who simply have been around the longest. I can't think of a single company in America that would reward seniority over talent, certainly not any successful ones, but yet that's what we do regularly. And it's not just the Republicans or the Democrats, frankly. It's an entire system that has figured out that if you drive away the ambitious people that want to move up quick, if you keep in the people who want to mark their time and move one rung up the ladder at a time, then you can find those folks to be highly corruptible. And again, this is not a partisan critique. It's an institutional critique. The folks that often end up leading committees are the ones that fundraise the most from the PACs that have interests, special interests, one might say, before those committees. So if you whore yourself out long enough, you really get to make a difference in the Congress of Washington. 
and the president thinks that we ought to have a better way of doing things, a way that is more driven by who you are, not how long you've been here. And if we had term limits, you'd have no choice but to, in a short period of time, uh, pick the brightest people to give the tough jobs to, to get to some problem solving. You know, the other thing about uh, term limits is that they really drive more consensus. And some folks wouldn't, wouldn't think about it in those terms, but it's really the case. You know, I've worked in a term limits environment in the Florida legislature. I work in this non-term limits environment in Washington. And when you know that you only have a certain amount of time to work in the institution, you want to get as many things done as possible on the issues you care about. And so if something is directionally correct, if you're getting most of what you want, if you're getting an acceptable amount of the agenda that you set out to do, you're willing to work with the other side. You're willing to work with people even on your own side that hold different views and make incremental progress that year after year really starts to improve people's lives. Term limits have worked for the state of Florida. It's led to creative and responsive public policy, and I'm glad to see President Trump fighting for term limits in the upcoming presidential term that I expect he will enjoy following his re-election. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Hot Takes. I'm Congressman Matt Gates. Tune in tomorrow for more Hot Takes.